Why can't the U.S. keep up with Asia when it comes to the use of robots in factories and warehouses? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is a Supply Chain Brain podcast. China, Japan, and South Korea rely heavily on robots and industrial automation for manufacturing and distribution, much more so, in fact, than does the U.S. Meanwhile, in this country, we face a significant shortage of human labor and skills. So why haven't we ramped up our reliance on automation accordingly? Today, we get a perspective on the question from Simon Witten, Senior Vice President with KUKA Robotics. He'll lay out the varying approaches of those three Asian powerhouses to automation and tell why all three are ahead of the U.S. in that regard. He'll also puncture a long-held assumption about the link between automation and unemployment. Finally, we'll discuss which tasks are still better done by humans. So here is my conversation with Simon Whitten. Simon Witten, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Simon, why is the U.S. lagging in the adoption of industrial robot automation vis-a-vis Asia? Wow, good question to start with. How to tackle that? As ever with these things, they're multifaceted. There's no one thing. But I would say that the U.S. can learn a lot from the respect of the drivers that are causing Asia to look at automation and adopt it at a faster pace. If you drill into the reasons for the acceleration of automation in Asia, and we highlight, let's say, three countries, China, Japan, and South Korea, there are a number of societal issues that have raised the need to find alternative methods of manufacture, not the least of which is that we've got relatively low birth rates, aging populations, and of course, there are, when you've got a, one child in a family, there are elevated expectations for what that child's going to do. So therefore, there is a genuine shortage of available manual labor to do the mundane tasks associated with manufacturing. We refer to them as the 3Ds, dull, dirty, and dangerous, for argument's sake. So there is a societal driver and a labor shortage driver that accelerates the take-up of automation and robotics in those countries. And you can make the case that the United States is in a similar situation where we have, let's say, relatively flat birth rates, again, an aging population, people have got expectations for long retirements, and of course, they need income and money to do that. Of course, the other factor that plays in now is that unemployment being at sort of record lows, this means it's difficult to find people to do these dull, dirty, and dangerous tasks. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you could argue the environment is very similar to Asia, and the route that Asia chose was to invest heavily in robotics and automation across a much wider spectrum of the industry, and those conditions exist here. And you would think, would you not, that given that, more and more people would turn and investigate robotics to answer their labor shortage issue. Well, I want to ask you more about why or why not that's happening in the United States, but just to get back to Asia for one moment, the whole selling point on outsourcing manufacturing to Asia up to now has been cheap labor. And by cheap labor, of course, we have meant cheap human labor. Now, I guess the problem is, as you say, fewer and fewer people maybe in Asia are migrating toward manufacturing jobs, and the ones who are 
I guess their salaries are going up. They're becoming more expensive, right? I mean, that is the driver or a driver. Of course, increasing manufacturing costs are a labor driver as they are anywhere or an automation mm-hmm. driver. But maybe we're at a point in the human life cycle where we've got more and more older people than we've ever had and less and less younger people coming in to fill those gaps as people retire and move on to the next phase of life. It's more and more difficult to fill the bottom of the pipe. So that is a drive. One of the things that is equally important is that when you're in demand, you have more choice. So by definition, if there's a more interesting job or a more rewarding job somewhere else, then you leave the dull, dirty, and dangerous behind. Now, you mentioned China, Japan, and South Korea as your three Asian countries that you're looking at in this comparison. Mm-hmm. I imagine that they are not all the they, – they don't have identical situations. China, of course, has a much higher population than either of those other two. But are, are there key differences that we need to keep in mind with regard to the pace of automation in those three countries? There are definitely differences. Uh, of the three that I've highlighted, of course, Japan would be – let's say the more automation mature of the three. It was earlier to adopt and has a more widespread use over a longer period of time. South Korea is rapidly catching up, of course. They're becoming a manufacturing powerhouse, but for a relatively small population. So in addition, they need more hands, as it were, and robots can provide some of the answer. China has a massive population, as you pointed out, but of course the one-child policy has been in place for a very long time. And that now means that the pool of young labor is somewhat more reduced. And we've seen the Chinese government's response to that has been to lift the one-child policy. But that will take a generation or two for very different manufacturing environments. You lived in Japan for a time. So what was your first-hand experience in terms of you saw what was happening there in terms of automation? Where did you see it most strongly, either by industry or by task? And, and how was it adopted? And how does it compare now that you're back in the United States and you're seeing our examples? How would you compare the two? Very good question. And I was lucky enough to also spend eight years in China. So I lived there for a while and also in Japan. So I'm thinking about that as I'm reflecting on the U.S. I would say there's a subtle difference. In Japan, robotics are not seen with fear. In other words, people are not, I'm generalizing horribly, of course, and I'm sure you can find somebody, but as a general statement in my experience, people were not concerned or fearful of robotics. In fact, they embraced them. It was considered high technology and people really wanted to understand that and they found them interesting and appealing. And that plays into the manufacturing space, of course. You'd be surprised sometimes you'd go into a Japanese factory and you'd see robots doing extremely mundane things, literally lifting a car seat, for example, from one place and putting it down somewhere else. But of course, on closer investigation, it's because we want to free up the individual that was doing that job to do a much more sophisticated job somewhere else that requires more decision making. In China, there's no doubt that what we've seen is a country catching up extremely quickly to the West and to Japan in terms of its manufacturing collateral. And the great thing about China was that the moment that they understood or entrepreneurs in China understood, I need to buy technology or invest in automation for this particular process, it was readily available. It was almost cut and paste and put in place. In the West, we tend to be looking at new things that require some development, let's say, to enable the process to be done automatically, and that takes time. In China, as they were looking for relatively simple things to be done, welding, handling, machine loading, that sort of thing, that technology was literally plug and play, so they could accelerate very quickly. 
And of course, the two things to keep in mind here, and I'm sure most of your listeners will know this, China has two essential market drivers. One, of course, is export market, which was the initial area that China exploited dramatically, building things to sell elsewhere. But the internal market was growing very, very quickly, and consumption of iPhones and televisions and cars grew dramatically. So they had these two drivers which were putting the heat into the pace of the robot market and the automation market. So somewhat different. The curve in Japan is somewhat flatter, a little like the United States, where in China it's very, very steep and continues to grow dramatically. Now we tend to think of automation and indeed technology in general as being one directional. It just advances and continues to advance. But I'm wondering if you saw any lessons learned in the application of automation in these Asian countries in terms of discovering that there were certain areas where automation did not work out as planned, that they had to back away from it to some extent. Did that happen at all, or is it simply just a march toward <laughs> increasing automation no matter what? Uh, that's a very good question. Let me think for a moment. Did I see things that didn't work out? I saw things that didn't work out, but not necessarily because somehow the technology was faulty. What I saw was people investing in an expectation that business would grow in a linear fashion, and of course it didn't. When I say that, I'm thinking a little about the photovoltaic market, solar panels and that sort of thing. And as you'll remember, prior to the 2008-2009 recession, there was a very strong growth in this area. And people are in doubling manufacturing space and the automation required to achieve that. And then we saw that market really stall and they were leveraged with borrowings and so forth. So, of course, it all collapsed horribly, particularly in China where we saw that. But I don't think that was because the technology somehow was letting people down, because the processes were fairly mundane in that respect. So what lessons can we draw from the experience of Asia here in the United States in terms of the areas that are ripest for automation, the type of tasks, the type of industries, the type of facilities? Just in general, can you speak to what we might be should be doing based on their experience? I would look at it this way. I think there are two areas that we could see growth or a faster adoption. We as an industry also bear some responsibility here because there's a tendency to talk about new things, emerging things, high technology things, which we think our customers are interested in and that these are technologies that they'll need going forward. I'm particularly thinking of things like Industry 4.0 and, and that sort of thing. But the vast majority of manufacturers in the United States don't use robots at all because they haven't even yet begun to understand quite how they can apply it. And then we have this dialogue going on which seems to be driving the product and solutions further away from them. I would say that it's twofold. Clearly new technologies, new processes will drive adoption and use. But I think at the other side of this, we need to demystify in many ways what robots and automation can do for manufacturers that have got these labor shortage issues. We need to stop talking about things which make them seem terribly complicated and difficult to own and to run and very simplistically explain what a robot does. And I, I say this quite often, a robot is a device for movement. We sell movement. Our industry sells movement. Controlled, precise, fast, but nonetheless movement. So in an organization or in a manufacturing site, where do you need movement to occur? Where do you need repeatable, precise, controlled movement? And this kind of robot, virtually any kind of robot, can provide exactly that. You need it heavyweights, lightweights. Do you need people to be nearby the robot while it's working? 
do you need very precise? Do you need to carry the part? Do you need to carry the tool? It's this kind of dialogue that we need to get across, demystify. And one other thing that I will say, in my experience, when I've talked to people who are not familiar with robotics, they tend to massively overestimate the cost. So I think we need to make sure we inform at both ends of this. We don't go so far away from the vast majority of small to medium manufacturers in the United States that they don't think robots are relevant for them. So far, this discussion has centered entirely upon the use of automation in response to labor shortages. But that indeed isn't always the situation when a company decides to automate. In Asia, was it entirely the case that these automated systems were being implemented because of a lack of workers, or were there indeed some workers being displaced? And if so, are there lessons we can learn about how those workers were retrained or diverted to other tasks? It's a very good question. And, of course, in, in every case, it wasn't simply a labor shortage that drove the adoption of automation. Some processes or some assembly opportunities or assembly manufacturing lines they simply have to be automatic. There's no alternative and no one credibly would think, oh, I'll try to do this with manual labor. Very simply, I'm sure your listeners can picture a car manufacturing line and everybody in their minds, I'm sure now, is seeing lots of robots welding cars and nobody would think to say, could I do this manually? So there are certain processes that we just accept have got to be done automatically. And of course, if you've got an emerging market like China was, less so now, but certainly 10, 20 years ago, then they automatically plugged in robots. It wasn't done manually. It was simply started automatically. Then there are other things which are so precise, so difficult to do, and maybe require almost no human contact, that they have to be done, again, robotically. I'm thinking about smartphone assemblies. The number of people you would need in one place to achieve the volumes that are required just mean it's impractical to consider it to be done manually. So part of this rapid growth was simply the fact that the application called for automation from the start and robotics. Mm -hmm. Now, to turn to the second part of your question, have people been displaced? Well, of course they have. I I can't ever say that's never happened. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure there is somebody somewhere who could say, no, that happened to me. But as a general statement, this isn't true. What we see historically, RIA, the Robot Industry Association of America, produces a lot of very interesting statistics about this. It's almost always the case that when the number of robot sales goes down, unemployment goes up. There's virtually no correlation between the adoption of one causing the other. They seem to track each other in the exact opposite direction. What we see tends to happen is that where we can put in a robot to do this repetitive task, the person that was previously doing the task is immediately redeployed to an area where more decision-making is required or some aspect of sensory, feel, touch, smell has to be brought to the process, which for a robot is incredibly difficult to do, to equip the robot to make those decisions, where a human being can do it in, in milliseconds. So this kind of decision-based process or more sophisticated process is where you'll find human beings mostly in factories that have a high number of robots. 
Do you think the same holds true for warehouses and distribution centers where the tasks are often very simple and repetitive and not quite as complex as putting together a smartphone? Are there opportunities there? Have you looked at that? And if you have looked at that, are there opportunities for moving workers to more sophisticated tasks? Or is it simply an end to the presence of humans in the warehouse? No, in fact, I'm glad you brought that question up. We have a division in the company called Swisslog that focus on logistics automation and warehouse automation. And they sell complete solutions for order fulfillment, if you like. So what you'll tend to see there is where there's a larger volume of product, for example, on a rack or in the warehouse in a box. This is a known position that the the automation can go and take the part. It knows where it's got to get it from. And it can bring a set of containers that have the customer's order within them, bring them to a point where a human being can effectively be the last link of the chain to make sure that the one that comes out is properly packaged along with the next one that's required and they can be put to an individual order. So certainly where there's mass handling going on, you'll find lots and lots of automation, but the human beings again are doing mostly at this point the decision making. There are companies now, some of the very big companies you might imagine in this space, Amazon and others, who are looking at how can we automate and using artificial intelligence and and machine learning and so forth to be able to assist with that process. But ultimately, this very small orders or late changes in order, these things, as we speak today, are much better done by human beings. For now, at least. I mean, we are told repeatedly that the presence of robots, especially in warehouse and distribution centers, but maybe also in manufacturing, does not mean the total elimination of human beings. But very often we're talking about cobots, you know, humans working side by side with robots. Even if that's true for now and for the foreseeable near future, do you not think that the end game somewhere down the line, distant line, is that we are going to see complete automation in factories and warehouses where human beings will simply not be present at all? Speaking personally, I don't see that day coming along. Based on what I understand of the technology as it is now and the rate of progress, going forward. It's hard for me to visualize a day when that comes about. But what I would like to add is this. This is a question that essentially is much bigger than the robot industry. And I go back to what I talked about before about the population and demographics and so forth. If I want to retire at 65, and if I want to have a long and happy retirement into my 80s or 90s with my pension in hand and I'm comfortable, Something or someone has got to create the value and the revenue that allows me to enjoy that long retirement. And unless, when you've got 3.5% unemployment rate, unless we find a solution for that, the inverse is that we won't be able to retire at 65, perhaps, and we'll have to work longer, which isn't very appealing for a lot of people, (laughs) that's true. So why not put the machines to work? We have to find this imbalance between the revenue generation and quality of life. So I can't envisage, first of all, to answer your question now in a concise way, I can't myself visualize a time when I walk into a factory. It's hard for me to imagine I'll see nobody in the factory except maybe the guy that paints walls or whatever he does. It's kind of a maintenance function. It's hard for me to imagine that. Mm-hmm. And second of all, as I explained, we need wealth generation. We need people to do the difficult decision-making things, and we need machines to do the mundane things, which ultimately help create the value and revenue we all need. So mm-hmm. I don't see this kind of dark day when nobody's working and machines are running everything. It's largely science fiction, I think. 
Well, Simon Witten of KUKA Robotics, I want to thank you so much for giving us a really interesting perspective on the progress or lack thereof of automation and robotics in the United States versus that of Asia, where you've had extensive experience and certainly know what you're talking about. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you for the opportunity. That was my conversation with Simon Witten of KUKA Robotics, talking about the progress, or lack of it, of robotics in U.S. factories and warehouses. We're online at www.splychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.